Amen. Good morning. You know, many times when we can sing a song that's uh, super repetitive, uh, like that, you'll, you'll, sometimes you'll hear comments like, I want deeper theology, or I want something with some meat in it. But one of the things that I was reminded of as we were singing uh, that song are, are just two passages that come to mind, is that if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you recognize that he's the one who made known to us the path of life, and it is in his presence that we have fullness of joy. So when you've tasted his presence, those words actually become true. Those words become real, and you, you don't want to leave his presence. You, don't, you, want to, you want more, and you want him, uh, basically God to set you on fire just for him, and in turn, we live out lives on mission. So, good morning. Uh, my name is Jonathan Reyes. I serve here as the associate pastor at Fellowship Raleigh. Our senior pastor, Matt Schoolfield, is gone uh, for the weekend today, so that leaves me up to bat. Uh, and because of that, we are taking a brief pause from our sermon series through the book of Ephesians, which we've been going through verse by verse. Uh, and we're going to be focusing on the book of Jeremiah. Um, the 29th chapter, focusing on just verses 4 through 7. We're not going to be focusing on verse 11. That's popular in a lot of coffee mugs, but just verses 4 through 7 this morning. And we'll be expounding on this idea of blooming where you are planted. Um, so as you guys look for it, whether on your tablets, phone, Bibles, the passage will also be on the screen behind me. But as I mentioned during first service, I will mention it here. Um, you know, as this caramel cinnamon preacher, um, I give you guys full license to talk back to me. If there is something that ministers to you, say amen. Give me an amen. Talk back to me. Let me know that you're leaning in and you're engaging with God's word. So Jeremiah 29 verses 4 through 7 says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease." But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Let's pray. Father, in this moment I come before you recognizing that I am weak, that I need your power and your grace to communicate your word, Father. I pray, Lord, that you would fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit to proclaim your word with conviction, that I may actually believe the words that I'm preaching, that I would do so with compassion, Lord, understanding that I, my job as a preacher is to not beat people up with your word, but to bring comfort. And I pray, Lord, that it would be done so with clarity, Lord, so that no word would be left uh, that is not understood, Father, leaving room for the enemy to take it and snatch it so that it does not take root. So, Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would give us a hunger for your word. Would you nourish us with your word this morning? Because man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from your mouth. 
We recognize, Lord, that your law is perfect and it revives the soul. So, Lord, would you revive us through your word this morning? Your testimonies are trustworthy, Lord, and they make wise the simple. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom from your word, wisdom to not be hearers of the word, but to be doers of your word, that we would be people that apply your word. Father, we recognize that your precepts are good, that they are um, that they're right, and that they make the heart glad. So I pray that you help us rejoice in it, rejoice through your word this morning, and I pray, Lord, lastly, that your command is radiant, Lord, and that they enlighten the eyes. So would you open the eyes of our hearts this morning to see you more deeply, to understand your mission more faithfully so that we can live as salt and light here in the city of Raleigh. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So growing up, I heard the phrase, bloom where you are planted. And many times when people use this phrase, bloom where you are planted, they usually mean to, to encourage other people. They, they have this idea of taking advantage of the opportunities placed before you, to be grateful for their ple- uh, present situation, to, to bloom where they are planted. But as oftentimes, we can be discouraged or we grow unhappy with where we are at in life. And you may struggle with this notion to bloom where you are planted. And however, there are many things that can encourage you, that can cause you to thrive even when the circumstances are not ideal. Many times that you may not live in the ideal house or in the ideal neighborhood that you want to. Maybe you are not working in the ideal job, in the ideal company. Or maybe you are attending the school that was not your top choice, so now you're attending the school that is not the ideal one. And this passage that we are looking at today speaks into this notion of blooming where you are planting. Because the Israelites that Jeremiah was writing to found themselves in a situation that was less than ideal, that was caused by their sin and rebellion. To give you some context, Jeremiah is writing uh, this portion, chapter 29, a letter to those who have been exiled to Babylon. And he continues this theme of condemning the false prophets. Uh, One would think that uh, given the Babylonian victory and the Israelites now in exile, that uh, these so-called prophets would have learned from their experience. Uh, But like many false prophets, even in our day today, They continue to proclaim lies. They dig their heels in and do not waver and still continue to uh, proclaim lies. Jeremiah chapter 28 verses 10 and 11 says this. This is the context. Then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke them. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people saying, Thus says the Lord. Even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. The false prophet Hananiah had led the people to believe that they were going to return home soon, that this exile was temporary, that that they didn't need to do anything, that they shouldn't get comfortable, but Jeremiah's counsel to them was different than the false prophets. He was telling them that God is commanding them to bloom where they are planted. 
Now, one of the reasons why this is crucial for us to lean in and engage with this message in particular is because the, the wisdom or the influence of Hananiah's way of thinking still influences the lives and thinking of many Christians in our day today, even, and even so in the last hundred years. An example of this was with Billy Graham, and I need to be very careful because Billy Graham is a man of God. He's at home with the Lord, and he, he, he preached God's word, and many people responded to that. But there was a point in history where Billy Graham uh, was not the same Billy Graham that we know to today. Uh, with Martin Luther King, when he gave his speech of I Have a Dream, people asked Billy Graham, hey, what did you think of that speech? Billy Graham's response was, um, only when Jesus comes back will little white children of Alabama walk hand in hand with little black children. We know that Billy Graham has since repented of that and has initiated and participated in uh, the work of reconciliation. But the fact of the matter is that this escapist way of thinking still permeates a lot of the ways how Christians uh, operate and think today. Uh, we see that people think that because Scripture does say that uh, as we get closer to the end, that the, not, that the love of many will grow cold, that evil will continue to persist and rise, and that things are going to get worse before Jesus comes back. So they take that and say, you know what? Things are going to get worse. If we don't engage, Jesus is going to come back faster, and then we get to be in heaven. So we have no reason to engage. So according to Billy Graham and others at that time, pursuing the good of the city through social reform was pointless. But he's repented. So the main idea I want us to see from our text today is blooming where we are planted means seeking the good of the city so that we may thrive as well. Blooming where we are planted means seeking the good of our city so that we may thrive as well. Now, this is important instruction for God's people through all ages because God has commanded us to be his agents of both reconciliation and righteousness in all the places that he has called us to. The early church father, Jerome, said it this way, let us furthermore seek the peace of the city and the land in which our church is located. So if we are going to bloom where we are planted, this leads me to my first point, number one, Make the city thrive because God put us here. Make the city thrive because God put us here. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. The first things the exiles that Jeremiah was writing to needed to learn was that the Babylonians were not to blame. The Babylonians were not to blame for their captivity, for their exile. In the grand scheme of things, it was God who deported the Israelites to Babylon. It's significant that this text begins that thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This first person pronoun served to the exiles 
that everything that has happened to them was orchestrated under God's sovereign control. And God's message to Jeremiah here was essentially this. You're in this mess because I sent you there. And I sent you there because you forgot about me. And because you forgot about me, you began to act like the pagan nations rather than the distinct people that I have called you to be, a people to worship me alone. But you began to worship many gods. And because of that, now this judgment has fell upon you. And simply put, God is saying to them, listen, go ahead, make yourself at home. It's going to be a while. It's not going to be the two years that Hananiah said, but it's going to be 70 years. The second thing the exiles had to realize that since it was going to be a while, then they had no choice to establish roots. They have to establish roots so that they can be fruitful and multiply. And God gives them clear directives in verses 5 and 6. He tells them, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your son and sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Build houses. Provide for yourselves. Have families. In other words, what God is telling the Israelites who are in exile is that they are to have a posture of presence. That they are not to spend their time in exile moping around, adopting a victim mentality, uh, that they are supposed to just think about the good old days or, or think about how uh, the lost cause and all of these things, but th rather they are to sit there, take responsibility for their actions, recognize that it was their sin that led them there, and then they were to thrive in a new land. There's no questions that they are exiles. But the thing was that God was telling them is that, listen, while you are there, I need you to act well. God wanted to establish a kingdom presence in Babylon through Israel. Building houses means to settle down and to establish roots. To plant garden and eat of its produce meant that they were to participate in building up the economy of Babylon so that they can provide for themselves and for their families as well. And then the idea of uh, having their family means that they had to uh, have vested interest. They needed to take ownership of their situation because ownership requires some sort of investment. Tony Evans said it like this, speaking on this passage. God told the exiles that while they were waiting for a better tomorrow, they are to be industrious today. That was your amen moment. The exiles of Judah needed to understand that the Babylonians were not their problem. God was. And if God is your problem, then God is your only solution. The implication for us today on this side of history is that it does not matter who is in office or what policies or programs we want to launch if we lose our spiritual perspective. There is a book in the Bible called Esther, and in that book it tells us about what happens after the Babylonian exile, after the fall of Babylon, when there's a time where Israel is now under the rule of the Persian Empire. And in this book, there is a man named Haman, and Haman comes up with this plan, and he even gets the king to sign off on it. And his plan is to annihilate, to obliterate, to kill, and destroy every Jewish person. And word spreads, and you can imagine the Jewish people like, what is, 
what's going to happen? They just authorized our extinction. So Mordecai, Esther's uncle, comes to her with some urgent counsel, and look what it says in Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. It says, Do not think for yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews, because she lived at the king's palace. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And what God is communicating through me, through the prophet Jeremiah, to us, is that Fellowship Raleigh Church has been strategically placed in this neighborhood for such a time as this. We need to see that God put us here for a reason. He has sovereignly placed us in the Longview neighborhood of Raleigh so that we can respond to the tangible needs around us. So our job is to make Raleigh thrive. Why are we to make Raleigh thrive? One, because God put us here. And we don't just make it thrive because of that. We do so because, number two, my second point, we make the city thrive because it is for our benefit. Let's look at verse 7. Make the city thrive because it is for our benefit. Verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. It says, but seek the welfare of the city. This word welfare is translated from the Hebrew word shalom. It can be translated as seek the shalom of the city, and in its shalom, you will find shalom. And, you know, for, for many of us who've been Christians for a while, we know that this, this word shalom means peace. But shalom is much more than just peace, the absence of conflict. It is a comprehensive peace. It is more than the absence of conflict and death. It is a rich word that fills a community by embracing the well-being, contentment, wholeness, health, prosperity, safety, and rest. Shalom means order. It means harmony and happiness. It means all that is right in the city. So this verse implies that God did not want the Jews, the Israelites, to build walls around their homes and to build up a holy huddle, a community within a community, but rather they are to have this posture of presence uh, because they were not to shield themselves but from the pagans, but they were to be present and active in that community as people as representatives of a different kingdom. God wanted the Babylonians to see the difference between his people and them. And to the Jewish people, this was a countercultural command. Because all throughout the Old Testament, Israel was very inward focused. Israel prayed for destruction of the nations and God's blessing upon them. And this idea to thrive for them in this pagan land was not just for them to thrive personally, but it was also to pray for the welfare, the well-being, the prosperity, the peace of the country of their exile. And for this practical reason was that when the country prospered, they were going to prosper. Proverbs 11.11 says this, By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. What's interesting about this command is that this is the only time in the Old Testament, throughout the entire Old Testament, where God commands Israel to pray for their enemies, to pray for the Babylonians, 
This is the only time you can research it, you can look for it. All the other times is pray for Jerusalem, pray for the peace and prosperity of Jerusalem, never to pray for, the, for their enemies, for the surrounding nations. In this command, although practical, you can imagine, it was difficult to put into practice. It's never been easy to pray for those who are hurting you. It's never been easy to pray for those who have been causing wrongdoing to you. However, it was in their best interest to do so. If Babylon prospered, that means that the exiles were going to prosper also. Blooming where you are planting means making the city thrive because when the city thrive, we will thrive. We are going to benefit from it. And this is a great metaphor of just what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian, by definition, is being in exile. If you don't believe me, let's look at what 1 Peter chapter 2 says. 1 Peter, writing to Christians under, uh, under persecution, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You can imagine these passions of the flesh was to retaliate the injustice that they were receiving from the Roman government. That was, that was the passion. But Peter says, no, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's as if God was saying through Peter the very same thing what he is saying to the Israelites through Jeremiah. Listen, do good. Let your light shine. You're, in a, you're away from home because we are citizens of the kingdom that we cannot see. This is why the language of those displaced in life is so appropriate for us because Scripture calls Christians strangers, foreigners, aliens. We are in this life but not of this life. And one of the reasons why the wheels are flying off in our culture today morally is in fact because for too many years, Christians have abandoned their call to be sought and light and have secluded themselves within our churches. We have abandoned what it means to, to be on mission. Christians in America uh, have been known, this is a generalization and it's not necessarily true, but we are often known for what we are against. Even though many Christians are actively working to dismantle unjust laws and provide ways for this shalom to be a reality in our community. Christians are active in this way, but we get the short end of the stick. But God's message is to pursue the good of the culture in which we live. We are to pursue both social and spiritual well-being of the community where we live, where we work, where we raise our families, because the result is that we are going to benefit from it which will result in improved lives for us. This means that we are to mobilize ourselves in the city of Raleigh and our communities for, to, so that it can be places of well-being, places of contentment, places of wholeness, places of health, prosperity, safety, and rest. The text says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find its welfare. You will find your welfare. If you study church history, you will see whenever the church, whenever Christians took this command, societies flourished. So if we are going to bloom where we are planted, and if we are going to seek the good of our city, and if we want to see this community in the city of Raleigh thrive, the first thing that we must do is pray. 
And I don't, and I don't mean praying like saying grace at the dinner table prayer. I'm talking about praying with your tears coming out, with snot coming out your nose, praying for the lost to come to salvation because you want them to come to salvation, because you see the brokenness around you and you want to see transformation, that you pray with such urgency, with, just, with, with such fervency, that you want to see things change. Praying that God will use and empower his people to be salt and light, to be citizens of heaven, embodying the characteristics of what it means to be a kingdom people. Praying that God will transform the community by both the preaching of the gospel, but also through us living and looking like Jesus Christ. And one way that you can do this is by praying for those who are in authority locally. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul tells Timothy that he's commanding the church that we need to pray in this way. Why? So that we can benefit from it, so that we can lead a, a peaceful and quiet life. Connected to this idea of prayer is going on a prayer walk. Prayer walking through this community, going prayer walking through the community that you live in, prayer walking during your work break and praying around your uh, campus, praying for the lives there, the needs that are there, for God to step in. There, there's something unique with prayer walking because it awakens you to actually observe and witness the actual needs of that community. One of the things that I, I constantly, as I'm talking with people um, who watch the news a lot and always ask me, like, Jonathan, you grew up in the hood and somehow you made it out. How, how did you do that? Because it's like a, it's crime infested. There's lots of drugs. There's just lots of brokenness. There's just single parent homes. Like, how, how did you do it? And, and I sit there because we can see on the TV that they're just like, how is that happening with black on black crime and all of that, and I'll say, listen, it's very easy to criticize when you're not present in that neighborhood. It's, it's very easy to criticize when you don't know anybody in those neighborhoods. But when you actually are there and you actually know people there, what happens is that you have compassion. You no longer criticize. You no longer critique what's going on. You, you begin to have compassion for the disadvantages that, that's happening in those places. One of the fellowship groups that I'm a part of a few, back, a few months back actually did this. We partnered with Justin and Bree of Bridges International to just walk and pray around the campus of NC State University. All we did, I wasn't there, Jack and I, we were in Nicaragua, but the group, they went and they just walked around Centennial, they walked around Hillsborough Street, just praying, God, you know the needs, you know these college students, would you save them, would you transform them? Would you set them on fire to be world changers here on the campus? The second thing that we can do is partner. You know, by God's grace, we already have, as a church, established partnerships with several nonprofits and agencies that are part of the solution. They don't just talk about the problem, but they're thinking of ways to actually solve some of these issues. And, and because of that, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to, if it ain't broke, don't fix it right. Um, we just... Jump in in whatever God is doing through the partnerships we already have. 
Our deacons of Outreach and Missions, Aaron and Carol Smith, are hard at work uh, formalizing partnerships with different agencies and nonprofits in the city of Raleigh, and they're coming up with a document that they can put in your hands, specifically in the hands of fellowship group leaders, so that, they, so that we as a group can actually serve together. Because one of the things, my role here is I oversee the small group ministry. We call it fellowship groups. And one of the things that, that I've been emphasizing for the past year and a half is that, hey, we already, we take groups seriously. We already have this time blocked out on our calendar throughout the week. Uh, once a semester, let's take that night, that time that's already been blocked out, and let's get out of the group and let's do something in the city of Raleigh by serving tangible needs. And that's something that I've been kind of emphasizing and encouraging. And what Aaron and Carol are doing is saying, hey, here's a list of five different organizations that you can partner with. You don't have to do the hard work of thinking, where are we going to serve? It's all, the hard work has already been done for you. Here are five different ways. Just pick a night, contact them, serve, and rub shoulders with them. Another thing is that I, I begin to see is that in our culture today, and a lot of older people... Uh, complain that, that this generation is, is very entitled, right? That you kind of hear these things, and sometimes you see it with participation trophies and etc. So one of the things that I would encourage you parents is to take your kids with you when you go serve at these places. Like, take your kids on a missions trip with you. Don't leave them here. Let them see the brokenness. Let them see that, that they have benefits that other people do not have. That other people grow up with, with several disadvantages. Be happy that you have both your parents because not everybody does. Be happy that you have food on the table because these people here don't, don't know where they're going to find their food. One of the things we did in um, the Crabtree Fellowship Group that I lead, uh, we partnered together with the Raleigh Dream Center and we served at their family night. And at their family night, all they do is that all they asked us is say, hey, Jonathan, we have people who are serving food. What we want from your group is to be present, build relationships, share the gospel, love on these people. These people are broken. They just need some encouragement. They come in and it, listen, if you're not around broken people, you, it can, you know, cause you a little bit of discomfort. Like, wait a minute, they're loud. Sometimes there's a lot of mental health issues. Sometimes there's addiction problems and you don't know how to do that. But what happens is that when you actually rub shoulders with people like this, you have compassion. And you want to say, you know what, what are the things that got this person here or these people here? And then you actually want to do something about it. But I understand that sometimes when you go down that rabbit hole, it can be paralyzing. And there's like, there's so many things and I'm just one person. How can I actually do something? So one of the things that we do, as I mentioned, in our fellowship groups is we want to meet real needs. Here's a list of several ways, that you, several organizations in the city of Raleigh that you can partner with. You can serve at CLI Prison Alliance. They, they put together different Bible study curriculums. We did a book drive here to put solid Christian books in, in the hands of inmates who are in prison. Because a lot of those people in prison have been ostracized by society, but many times people get saved in prison. So we want, we, you know, Hebrews chapter 2 says, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 says, remember those in prison. Another way that you can do so is with Raleigh Dream Center's Family Night, as I just mentioned, and also Adopt-A-Block. Uh, they have a site two blocks from here, right over there, 
Washington Terrace, where they want to give out groceries to help fight against food scarcity. Another one is Gateway Women's Care. We have people who sat on the board who've been employed there that, that want to address uh, emergency uh, crisis pregnancy. Uh, statistics show that whenever a mom who is pregnant and is contemplating abortion, whenever they have an ultrasound and actually hear the baby's heartbeat, the statistics go way down, like by 80% that they actually go through with an abortion. You can serve there, come up with little bags to kind of help a lot of these people who are struggling in these ways. Um, another thing that we do is that we partner with different schools with some, diff with some beautification projects. One way we're doing this this year, pull out your calendars, is on Saturday, July 16th, we're going to, God has opened us a door to serve Ligon Middle School. That's a middle school about two miles from here that, you know, we've partnered with in the past. And they have allowed us to, and asked us to do some beautifying work on their campus. They've asked us if we can paint and touch up some of their classrooms, to do some mulching, to do some landscaping in that property. We have students who go to that middle school who come here. We have parents that their kids go to that middle school. Um, and one thing about Ligon is that that is a place where we had a mentoring program. This, I said had, because COVID caused us to put the pause button on there. And because of COVID and also season of life, we no longer are doing the mentor program because the person who was overseeing is no longer here. Um, also, with that, uh, on the same thing, because of COVID and season of life, we no longer have a site coordinator at Washington Terrace. Many people have asked us, like, hey, what are we doing with Adopt-A-Block? What are we doing with Adopt-A-Block? And I'm like, hey, we don't have a site coordinator. Um, we are just praying, honestly, that God would raise someone up to, that has an actual heart for this, that wants to restart and relaunch the mentoring program, that actually wants to take on the responsibility uh, on the second and fourth Saturday to to address food scarcity at Washington Terrace. Someone who will take ownership and jumpstart these ministries. Ministries that provide weekly consistent touch points with the people that God has called us to serve right here in this neighborhood. Touch points that actually bear eternal fruit. Sometimes what happens is that we can swing into one way of the pendulum and we want to do all these things to fix uh, the brokenness in our city, but we do so without the spiritual perspective recognizing that it does bear eternal fruit. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, the mentoring program, you know, that was done here for many years. Through that program, many young students came to faith in Jesus Christ. Some of them were baptized here. One of them is being baptized next week. It bears eternal value. There is work to be done for you to be able to sit down because their mom is probably working two, three jobs and they don't have anyone to help them with their homework, to, to, for you to take two, three hours of your time to help them with that, not only changes their eternal destiny, but also because of all those several disadvantages, what happens? No supervised mom. I'll give you an example. This was me. No mom working two jobs, dad not present in the home, I have a ton of friends who sell drugs. What happens? I get drawn into that because those are my friends, Right? And what happens? I end up getting caught up in a life of crime, and God has to be the one to step in. And if it wasn't for God, I'd probably be dead and in jail. So God can use us to change not only the eternal destiny, but actually their physical destiny. 
a destiny that is leading them towards prison or, or six feet in the grave. And that can change simply by you helping them with their homework, where then they can get straight A's and then they can qualify for a scholarship and actually go to college or get a trade and actually change the trajectory of their family forever. So what would happen if we had Christians and partners of Fellowship Raleigh actually sitting on the board of affordable housing initiatives here in Raleigh, right? We can, we can sit here and complain that cost of living is going up, houses are expensive, but what would happen if we had actually people sitting on the boards advocating and say, hold up, time out, if we allow this to go unchecked, no one can live in Raleigh anymore. What if we had uh, people... Christians sitting on local school boards who are able to offer pushback to some of the questionable things that are going to be taught in our schools? What if we had Christians leading their local HOA? What if we had Christians leading the PTA, the Parent Teacher Association, and actually being present in the lives of their children? What if we had Christians who actually led their neighborhood watch and associations in their neighborhood? What if we made it our business to make Raleigh thrive and not the politicians? So as I close, my desire is that you don't hear this message for the sake of doing this thing or because it's in vogue or politically cool, but we do this because we want to be like Jesus and Jesus modeled it. If you don't believe me, let's think about this for a second. God called Israel to establish his kingdom, his city within the city of Satan in Babylon. Jesus left heaven and dwelt among us. Jesus was the ultimate missionary who left where he was from to minister to a lost and broken world to a people that didn't even want him. Jesus was the one who not only preached the good news of the kingdom to a lost and dying world, but demonstrated the power of the kingdom by healing the sick, by feeding the hungry, by liberating those who were in captivity to sin. Listen, one of our core values is compassionate mission, and Jesus demonstrated and fulfilled what it is to live a life of compassionate mission. So as we seek to make Raleigh thrive, we do so because, number one, he put us here. We do so because, number two, because it's for our benefit. But ultimately, we make Raleigh thrive because we want to be like Jesus. We want to shine his light in a lost and dying world. And we want to do that not just by simply sharing the gospel, but we want to do that by meeting tangible needs. Uh, Jesus' half-brother James said it like this. Um, you know, show me your faith, and I'll show you my faith in my works. Why? Why does he say that? Because, you know, in that time it says, what if, suppose a man comes up to you saying, I'm going through this and this and this, and your response is to, hey, go and be well. I'll pray for you. Knowing that you have the means to answer that prayer. He says, that, that's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is if you have the need, you respond to that need. And you become the answer to prayer. Because God wants us to be agents of both his righteousness and be agents of reconciliation in all the places that he has called us to be. He's called us to bloom where we are planted. Let's pray.